morning. Everybody doing okay? All right. I'm anxious to get into the Word together. I uh, want to thank everybody who was working on the building this week. Lots of good progress being made. If you haven't been up to see the building yet, even if you can't come for a work day, but you just want to check it out, we'd love to, to give you a little tour and show you what's going on. So uh, please feel free to reach out. I'd like to set up a time to show you what's happening and celebrate together what God is doing. It's, um, it, it's really exciting to see the opportunity to put down roots in a community that desperately needs gospel testimony and gospel witness. Uh, I think God's doing a great thing. And so, uh, but we, we do all of that. We do the building stuff so that we can do the word stuff. And the word stuff is worship and fellowship and the preaching of God's word, the studying of his word. So that's, that's the point of the building. And so we want to use it to that end. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 5 together. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, I'm going to finish up John chapter 5 today. There's a lot here. There's a lot we won't have the opportunity to talk about and cover. Uh, such will be the case with uh, many parts of John as we try to do this in a, in a timely fashion. We won't cover everything, but we'll try to hit the highlights and make sure that as we go through this book, you have a feel for what God is doing through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to look today at, at verses 17 through 24 first, and then we're going to skip to 31 through 40 for the second half of the message today. Uh, the context here, of course, is Jesus just did a couple of miracles. You may remember that John's gospel includes what he calls uh, signs of, of Jesus' deity, and those are the miracles that Jesus did. He only lists a few of them. He tells us at the end of the book that, that Jesus did many signs and wonders, uh, but he wrote down a few of them as, as an example and as a witness and testimony to who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so we just saw that, that Jesus did a couple of healings. There was a healing that he, one of the healings that we didn't look at in detail was the one where the guy came to him and, and told him about a need and Jesus literally just spoke and, and healed this person from a distance. And then we see that very personal healing of the paralytic who was gathered at the pool of Bethesda that we looked at last week that Jesus interacted with one-on-one -on -one and healed just the same. And so we see, if we're, if we're asking the question as we go through the Gospel of John, who is this Jesus? We see this guy has incredible power. He has the power to heal by just speaking a word. He could heal somebody on the other side of the planet or he can heal by touching and by interacting one-on-one. -on -one. He has incredible power. But his healing, his miracles are coming uh, at a cost. And that cost is that he is falling out of favor with the Jewish leaders quite quickly. Uh, his last miracle, the healing of the paralytic, he actually did on the Sabbath, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us. In fact, if you're, I'd say, my generation or younger... Uh, you probably grew up in, an, in America, in a, in a culture where we really don't do, um, we really don't favor any days over others in terms of days of the week. If you're older, than, a little bit older than me and grew up in a, in a, in a generation older, uh, you probably remember there were times when Sundays were quite different than they are now. 
You didn't have youth sports on Sundays. You didn't have stores open or restaurants open. Things were different on Sunday. And so I think for those of us my age and younger, culturally, it's a little more of a leap to understand the Sabbath. But if you go to Israel even today, things are different on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath starts Friday night at sundown and goes till Saturday at sundown. And it's, it's, it's part of their culture and always has been to observe a day of rest. That's what the Sabbath was meant to be. Of course, the Jewish uh, leaders and hypocrites and legalist uh, Pharisees took that many steps too far. They said, not only can you not go to work on the Sabbath, but you can't do anything that even begins to resemble work. And so uh, we see Jesus get in trouble. That's what we talked about last week. Jesus begins to get in trouble with the Pharisees because he did a healing, something they considered work. And he instructed a man uh, who had been paralyzed for 38 years to walk and to carry his mat. And that was considered uh, a no-no because it was the Sabbath. So we ended our passage last week with that statement that the Jews began to persecute Jesus. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 5, verse 17. Let's read together. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. He's referring to the work that he just did on the Sabbath. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, the son of man is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater things than these so that you will be amazed. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. So Jesus is taking things a huge step forward now in his claims of who he is. He's in trouble with the Pharisees for working and encouraging work on the Sabbath. And when they challenge him on that, Jesus not only shrugs off their concerns about his work on the Sabbath, but now he's claiming equality with God. Can you imagine the outrage of these Jewish leaders who were upset because he was breaking their law and their rituals and their traditions? Now, not only is he doing that, he's claiming equality with God. This is, this is exactly what is going to get Jesus killed, although we've got a while before we get to that. Jesus claimed equality with God the Father. That's the first thing you'll see on the handout. He claimed equality with God the Father. He does this in a variety of statements. 
Okay, so the rest of John chapter 5 is Jesus' discourse. So those miracles set up all the things that Jesus is going to say now. And, and we'll see this, this is common throughout the Gospels. Jesus does miracles, and then he, and then he, he goes into um, these types of discourses where he's, he's making claims about himself, and he's sometimes reflecting on the miracles and sometimes just using those as a launching pad to get into something else. So he's breaking the Sabbath. Now he's claiming equality with God the Father. He does this in a few ways. First, he says, my father is working and I am working also. So what, I mean, what is, I mean, if, if you were to justify your actions in the same, in a similar way by saying, well, God does that. Why can't I do it? Well, the answer is obvious. You're not God. You can't use God's activity to justify your own activity. You're not him. But Jesus is doing exactly that. My father is still working, and I am working also. Why is Jesus working on the Sabbath? Because it's what his father's doing. Now, the work that he is doing is not work that prohibits rest. It's the work of the kingdom. It's the work of bringing healing, of bringing salvation, of restoring things to the way they were meant to be. This is the work that the father's always doing. So Jesus claims equality with God by saying the Father's working, I'm working also. He also says the Son only does what he sees the Father's doing. In fact, he says in verse 19, I, truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. This is absolute blasphemy to the Jews. That somebody would claim to be on equal footing with God the Father. That somebody would claim to be able to do the same things as God the Father. Jesus says, well, I only do what he does. I only do the things that I see him do. You see the Father do it? Yes. And, and he reveals these things to me. For the Father loves the Son, in verse 20, and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So he says, the father is working, I am working. Also, the son only does what he sees the father is doing. The father shows the son everything he's doing. He's claiming revelation. He's claiming to know things about God the father that no human being could possibly know on their own. And then he really takes it a step further. He says, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So the son also gives life to whom he wants. That's blasphemy. He's now claiming to have the power to give life. Something that is exclusively in the hands of God to do. No human being has ever had the power to give life in the way that Jesus is referring to here. But he's saying, hey, the Father can give life and so can I. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. Now he's claiming the freedom of his will to do as he desires, to give life to whom he wants. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right, this, <clears throat> this is a turning point in Jesus' relationship with the Jews. They can no longer tolerate what he's doing. 
He has now claimed equality with God the Father. He has said that he is able to do what the Father does. He says that the Father has given to him all judgment. Now he's saying that the Son should be honored at the same level and to the same degree as the Father. That they're on equal footing. And that the Father actually desires for the Son to be honored so much so that anybody who does not honor the Son, Jesus, does not honor the Father. They cannot accept this teaching. They, they must respond by ending Jesus' ministry at this point. That's why it, it said earlier in verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which was bad enough, by the way, to them, that was a big deal. But he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. <clears throat> Jesus claimed equality with God the Father. Don't miss this in the Gospel of John. Because, you know, C.S. Lewis tells us we have three choices. We've talked about this before, I know, but it's worth repeating. He tells us we have three choices in, in, in deciding who Jesus is. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He's a liar. He could be making these things up, and that's what we'll look at in the second part of this passage. He could be making these things up. He could just be out to straight up deceive people. But if he's a deceiver, if he's a bad person, how do you explain all of the good things that he does? More, more than that, how do you explain the miracles? And again, if he's a lunatic, maybe he believes this. Maybe he's not out to deceive, but he believes this. I've, I've known, and you have probably encountered people who believe ridiculous things about themselves that just simply aren't true. It could be that he's not mentally well. It could be that he believes he's equal with God the Father, but he's just simply not. Instead, he's out of his mind. History has had many examples of madmen like this. Uh, but again, how do you explain the miracles? How do you explain the powerful things that he did? How do you explain uh, the good things that he did? And so C.S. Lewis's conclusion, for those reasons and many, many others, as C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest apologists uh, of the last century, uh, his conclusion, he's the Lord. He is indeed who he says he is. Those are the three options. And he takes away the option of saying that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, which is what many people believe to be true about Jesus. He's another example of, of a good person. He simply cannot be that. A good person would not claim to be equal with God if it were not true. A good person would not be able to do miraculous signs unless he was more than a good person. The one thing he can't be is just a good moral teacher. He must be something more. A liar, a lunatic, or as Christians profess, actually the Lord. Those are the options that we have. And we see that sort of forced upon us in this passage in John chapter 5 as Jesus is taking his ministry and his, 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 uh, his work on earth beyond just doing good things, beyond even just miracles and healings. He is now claiming equality with God. You can't honor the Father if you don't honor the Son. And this forces the issue of many of the other world religions that try to say that Jesus is something less than God. 
something, something sub-God. He, he maybe is a powerful man. He's maybe a good man. He, was, he, he is a spiritual man, but he wasn't God. Well, Jesus strongly disagrees with the fact that you could say that. Any religion that wants to say there's God and then there's Jesus and Jesus is important and Jesus is good and Jesus has a role to play, but he's not equal with God, does not fit within the teaching of Jesus himself. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So you cannot properly honor God, the Father, without honoring Jesus, the Son. Okay, so here's, here's the point I want to make from this first section of this scripture. We're not done with it yet, but the point is this. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. I want to make this point from each section, but I want to do it here. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. I think everybody in, in one way or another and in some sense wants to know God, right? If, if, you're, if you believe that a God exists, if you believe that the universe is not here by accident or by chance, that this is in fact a created world that we live in and that there is a creator who has done those things, who doesn't want to know God in some way? We may not all want to know God to the same degree or at the same cost, but everybody wants to know God. Well, I would argue if you want to know God, then you need to get to know Jesus. And I would do that uh, from, from this passage, but also earlier in John's gospel, if you remember in John chapter 1 and verse 18, John said these words. He said, no one has ever seen God. So the first problem that we have in getting to know God is that we do not see him. We cannot see him. He is invisible to us. That's a huge barrier if we want to get to know God. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, however, John says, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So the purpose in, one of the purposes in Jesus coming to the earth, one of the purposes in Jesus who existed for all of eternity as part of the triune Godhead, one of the purposes in him coming and becoming a man being born as a child and growing up and living a life on earth, very similar to how you and I have lived a life on earth, is to reveal God to us. There is some strong distinctions between us as finite human beings and God as an infinite eternal being. One of the, one of the things... Um, that is problematic from the very beginning is that we're, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden and, and it was explained in the book of Genesis as the fall of man, we are unable to commune with God in the way that he created us to. And so Jesus comes first to reveal God to us. He comes to be God in flesh. He comes to, to make known what God is like and who he is. And then through his death and resurrection to bring back the ability for us to live in communion and to live in relationship with God. And so if you want to know God, the first step is to get to know Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is God himself and is at the father's side has revealed him. He's made him known. The book of Hebrews tells us in the very first verses, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. 
In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. This son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How does God reveal himself? Well, Hebrews tells us a couple of ways. One, in, the, in, in, in days gone by, and particularly in the, the time of the Old Testament, God spoke to us through prophets. And so we have God's self-revelation. God's effort to make himself known to mankind begins with the Old Testament as he reveals himself through prophets, beginning with Moses and the, all of the prophets that followed. He makes himself known. That's, the nature, that's one of the good things about the nature of his character is to reveal himself. God is not in the business of concealing himself, of making it hard to find out about him, of making it hard to know him. He is in the business of revealing who he is and of making himself known. He did this long ago through the prophets in different times and in different ways. But in these last days, which began at the time of Jesus, he has spoken to us by his son. How has God revealed himself in sending Jesus Christ to live and walk on the earth 2,000 years ago, to make himself known to us. That's how he has spoken to us, and that's how he speaks to us in this current age. There's some interesting things about, because we're speaking about who Jesus is in Hebrews chapter 1 here, a couple of things that sort of reaffirm what Jesus says of himself in John 5. God has appointed him heir of all things. That's in Hebrews 1 verse 2. The heir of all things. He has entrusted in him the inheritance of all things in the universe. We saw that Jesus said in John 5 that the Father has given to him the judgment. That In fact, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. He has placed the Son in this position of authority over his creation. Making him the heir of all things. Even in this creation even was made through him. We saw that in John chapter 1. We see that again here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that the universe was made through him. And then there's this beautiful statement in verse 3, Hebrews 1. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. That's how he has revealed himself he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Okay, so we see in this passage, in John 5, 17 through 24, Jesus reveals his equality with God the Father. He may, let's say this, he makes this claim. If, if we go back to the idea of John's gospel being a, a witness, a testimony of who Jesus is, where he presents, uh, he presents people as witnesses, he presents evidence in the forms of signs and miracles, he presents the, word of Jesus, the words of Jesus himself. If we think of this as like this is a, a, a trial that is being carried on and we're looking at the evidence we're going over the evidence. We're part of the jury. We're supposed to decide who we believe Jesus is. And John is making his case. So if we go back to that concept, Jesus' own words claim equality with God the Father. Now, we, the jury, have to decide, do we believe that's true? Okay, Jesus can claim that. 
and, and on a trial, you're going to have lots of people claim lots of things. Your job as the jury is to sort through and decide what you believe is true, right? Okay, so he's made this claim. Do we believe it? Well, let's ask ourselves some questions. Are there any witnesses? Is there anybody else that might testify to the truthfulness of Jesus' words? Well, Jesus and John, in, in composing his gospel, anticipate that question. If we, if we go to the last few verses of John chapter 5, verses 31 through 40, we'll see that that question has been anticipated. Let's look at 31 through 40 together. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He understands this, right? He understands that you can't just say anything about yourself without backing it up with some form of verification of, of that being true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony that he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John. He's referring to John the Baptist, uh, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have greater testimony than John's. Now remember, John the Baptist was highly respected among the Jewish people. He was considered a leader. He was considered a prophet. He was a man that the people listened to. Even if he got in trouble with some of the political leaders at the time, the Jewish people respected him highly. He was a great guy to have giving a testimony. But Jesus is sort of, a, well, we'll get to that. He's alluding to, that's not my, my greatest testimony. I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish these very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So he's, he's pushing back. He's, he's, he's really condemning the Jewish people that he's speaking to. He's speaking to the fact that they have rejected the testimonies that have been brought in his favor. Uh, but if we, if we look at what those testimonies are, we see that Jesus points to four testimonies that confirm who he is. This is the next thing on the handout. He points to four testimonies that confirm who he is. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So who does testify about you that we can believe? Well, he starts out with the easy one, John the Baptist. Everybody there acknowledged John the Baptist's position of authority and leadership, that he was a, a, a trustworthy Jew. And so he starts with John's testimony, but, but he makes it the least of the testimonies in his favor. But, so this is the first one, John the Baptist, and, and furthermore, the rest of the disciples, which would come later. But I want to lump these in together for our purposes. One of the testimonies about Jesus is the people who were closest to him and the people who followed him and knew him during his, his earthly ministry. We have John's testimony. In fact, John actually dies as a result of his testimony. That's how you know he believed it. 
It's been said that, that people will often die for something they believe to be true, but rarely will a man die for something he knows to be a lie. So it's possible John the Baptist was wrong about Jesus and died anyhow because he believed it that much. But it's not possible that John the Baptist and all of the other disciples who would come after him who would die for the same reason all knew this was a lie. So this idea that after Jesus' death, the disciples didn't know what to do, so they, they, they came up with this story that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was God and made up all of these things about him is, is somewhat discredited by the fact that they were all willing to die for that testimony. You would think at least a couple of them would have defacted at the point of death and, sa and said, you know what, if you're going to kill me over this, I probably should tell you we really made that up. But the fact that all of them were willing to go to the very end, proclaiming what they had taught about Jesus, that he was indeed God. But it starts with John the Baptist. He gives his testimony. We saw that in the beginning of John's gospel. He says, this is, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he was willing to die for that. That's the first testimony. Uh, Jesus refers to that in, in our passage here in 5, 31 through 40. Um, you sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, you receive his testimony, even though I don't need his testimony. You receive it, so I mention him. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But then Jesus says, I have greater testimony. And those, that greater testimony is the next three things that he mentions. First, he mentions his works. So the four testimonies that Jesus points to are one, John the Baptist, two, his works. That's why his works are so significant in the gospel of John, because they speak to who he is. If somebody claims to be God but can do nothing of power to back it up, you have good reason to question that. If somebody claims to be God, though, and they can make paralytics rise and walk, if somebody claims to be God and they can speak a word of healing to somebody who is at a great geographic distance, as we saw in the beginning of John chapter 5, then you have reason to consider their claims. If they have the works to back that up, then you at least owe it to them to hear them out. And Jesus says this is, this is one of the reasons he did these works. You might remember we talked about last week, why didn't Jesus heal all of the disabled people at the pool of Bethesda? And, and I made the case and would make again this week that the point of Jesus' miracles wasn't always to heal everybody, but the point of his miracles was to speak to who he was. They were a testimony that his words were true. You have his works there to back up his words. Okay, so that's, that's what he's claiming here, that his works. He says in, in verse 36, I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. He does things so miraculous that you have to conclude that he's been sent by someone with authority, that he has been sent with somebody with supernatural power, with miracle working power, his works. Okay, so we have four testimonies, John the Baptist and the other disciples that would follow, his works, and then he goes on to say that the God the Father himself 
is one of the testimonies that confirm who he is. The fa- verse 37, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. He condemns them in the next sentence. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. But there were many people who did hear his voice. This is one, and it's actually one of the things that John, uh, the gospel writer, not again, we have John the Baptist and John the gospel writer. John the gospel writer actually leaves out of his account that's in the other accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is the voice of the Father actually testifying to who Jesus is. John seems to, to write with a different agenda. He, he's the, when he speaks about the Father's voice being a testimony uh, to who Jesus is, he is speaking that in a way that's digging at those who, has reject, who have rejected him. Because he says here, you, you have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. So he's speaking to a different audience. And we'll, we saw that at the end of this passage too. Um, but to our audience, to those who are interested in these testimonies, to those who are interested in believing, it's good to go back and note that God's, God the Father actually verbally expressed his testimony to who Jesus is. People heard it with their own ears. Now, we, sometimes we throw around that phrase, I, you know, God said to me, I heard from God, I spoke to God. We don't generally mean, sometimes people do, though I have never made this claim, we don't generally mean that we heard audible voices. The Gospels actually claim to have, to have witnessed an audible voice from heaven. I'll show you this in Mark chapter 1. By the way, uh, just a, a quick parenthesis here. Uh, many of us are, are reading through New Testament books together as a way of getting into the Word. I'll talk about that more uh, before we close today. We're going to read through the book of Mark this week. We're going to actually do it over uh, two weeks. And so we'll just do half of the book of Mark. Uh, I'm just trying to keep, keep this at a very, very achievable pace. And so you'll actually read these words if you're doing that with us uh, this week. But in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11... This is the story of the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with, with you I am well pleased. Two things happen here. One, there's something visible. This, the spirit comes upon Jesus descends on him like a dove. People literally saw that with their eyes. This was not a vision. This was something that actually happened. So they literally saw it with their eyes. They saw, in some sense, a form of God, the spirit in the form of a dove descending on. And then they heard with their ears, literally heard with their ears, a voice that came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so when we go back to John's gospel, and Jesus says, the father who sent me has testified about me, you have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. He's not saying nobody's heard his voice, nobody has seen his form. He's condemning those that he's speaking to. He's in this argument with the Jewish leaders. But it's important to note here that one of the testimonies that confirm who Jesus is, is that people did actually hear the voice of God the Father. That he did actually verbally express that Jesus is who he would later say he is. 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And they actually saw with their eyes the spirit coming down upon Jesus. The other gospels testify to this. The four testimonies that confirm who Jesus is. John the Baptist, his works, and then now we see God the Father. In fact, we'll see, uh, I won't read it, but we'll see that Jesus actually replicates that experience again later in Jesus' ministry when he takes Peter, James, and John and he goes up on what becomes known as the Mount of Transfiguration. It's known as that because Jesus is transfigured before them. And we have another occurrence of, actually, I'm going to get to this in a, in a second when we get to Second Peter. We have another occurrence of people seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears because the same thing happens. Jesus' form is transfigured. They see that, and then they hear a voice from heaven say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased in. Okay, so this is the testimony. We have John the Baptist, his works, God the Father, and then finally he points to the scriptures. The Jews held, of course, in very high esteem the Old Testament scriptures. That was their rule of law. They had additional writings that they held to as well, teachings of rabbis and, and, and um, religious leaders. And that's where they come up with all of these extra laws. Not only can you not work on the Sabbath, but this, somehow that this paralytic man picking up his mat and walking after he'd been healed was a breaking of the Sabbath. Those come from the, the extra writings that they have. But they held in very high regard the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus points back to them that the scriptures testify he says, after he said about the Father, and you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent, he says in verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. In other words, if the scriptures don't lead you to Jesus, then you don't have life from the scriptures. The scriptures testify about who he is. Even the Old Testament, we, we see that the Old Testament from beginning to end is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus, and there's a lot of great resources out there that show you how that's happening. One of them, um, there's a book called, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible is the children's version, but then there's a uh, non-children's version, basically an adult version. All they did was take out the pictures and they have the exact same text. Um, and so it's simple enough that even I can read it and comprehend it, which is great. Uh, it's called The Story of God's Love for Us. That's what it's called. So the Jesus Storybook Bible or The Story of God's Love for Us. If you don't have one of those, if you have children, you need to read to them the Jesus Storybook Bible. Because what it does is it goes through a, many of the major Old Testament stories. And then, of course, the New Testament as well. But it points out Jesus in all of the Old Testament. If you, do, if you don't have children and you want to read that for yourself, you don't have to, uh, you can read the Jesus Storybook Bible if you like pictures, but if you want the non-picture version, it's called The Story of God's Love for Us. Fantastic resource. It shows us how from beginning to end the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. They're testifying about Jesus. That's why every word of this book was written to lead us to Jesus to help us to know God through knowing Jesus, who is equal to God. He is one with God the Father. So he, he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. The scriptures testify about me. Peter, one of the disciples who was closest to Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples, I'm sure you know that. 
of those 12 disciples, you may not know, three of those disciples uh, were, were the closest to him. They were part of what was known as his inner, or what we refer to as his inner circle. Those three disciples were, were um, in on some things that a, couple, that a couple of things at least, one being the transfiguration that I already mentioned, uh, that the other disciples weren't part of. Peter's testimony about Jesus, if you, if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there because it won't be on the screen or you can just listen. In 2 Peter chapter 1, which is the very end of the Bible, just before Revelation, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, For we do not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from heaven, from the, I'm sorry, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's referring to the mountain of transfiguration. He's referring to that event where him, uh, James and John were on the mount with Jesus. He was transfigured before them. Uh, they, they heard this voice from heaven. They saw with their eyes. They heard with their ears. Again, Peter would die for this testimony. Okay, that doesn't mean it's true, but it certainly seems to indicate that he believed that it was true. Okay, so this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what I think Peter is, is claiming in his own personal testimony to who Jesus is. I saw, I heard, but you might not believe that. But what you absolutely cannot deny is that all of the scriptures testify about him. So in a sense, maybe he's putting them on equal footing. I think he's perhaps elevating the testimony of scripture above his own eyewitness testimony. And that makes sense. Because the, the scriptures are more sure. The scriptures are more trustworthy than one man's eyewitness testimony. So Peter dies for the fact that he believes he saw Jesus transfigured, that he heard the voice of God the Father say, this is my son. He would let men kill him for that belief. But he says, if you don't believe that, at least look at the scriptures. Believe the scriptures. Their testimony can't be denied. Their testimony is sure, strongly confirmed, and you would do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. This is so awesome, isn't it? These guys really believed this, and so should we. Jesus believed this, and so should we. And he points to these testimonies. John the Baptist, who died for this. My, my works, Jesus says. The fact that I'm doing miraculous, supernatural things that nobody else can do. There was like nobody competing with Jesus at this point. He's healing people. 
He's, he's doing miraculous things. I can't wait till we get to John chapter 6 in a couple of weeks because his, he does a couple of miracles there. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with them. If, you've not, if you're not, uh, go ahead and read ahead and, and, and spoil the fun. But it's fantastic what he does in John chapter 6. He's doing all of these miraculous things. So John the Baptist, his work, God the Father himself, there's a voice coming from heaven saying, this is my son. What more do you need? If that's not enough, read the scriptures and see that they testify to who Jesus is. And if you still don't believe, I don't know what else to tell you. What more could you possibly want? Everything seems to be pointing to who Jesus is. Why don't we believe? Well, our hearts are broken. We're broken by sin. We need Jesus to reveal these things to us. But once he does and the lights come on, you're like, how did I ever not believe this? It's all there, all the evidence you could ever need, everything pointing to Jesus, everything testifying to who he is. There's not anything that has ever happened in the world that argues against this testimony. He is who he says he is. He's the savior of the world. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. I said I wanted to make that point again. This is the last point on the handout, the last point I want to make today. If you want to know God, read the Bible. I said I think everybody wants to know God in some way. It's just a matter of whether or not you're willing to put any effort into that, I guess. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. How do you get to know Jesus? Read the Bible. The scriptures reveal him. The scriptures testify to him. You can get to know something of God in nature and in relationships and in lots of natural things. We call that general revelation. You know, some people say, well, I feel closest to God when I'm out in nature. That's because nature does reveal something of God. But if you want to know specifics about who God is, if you want to know how God has chosen to reveal himself, you must know him through the scriptures. You must pick up your Bible and read and get to know him and get to know who he is and what he's like and what he does and, and what he wants from you and what he wants to do for you and what he expects of you and why he created you and why he made this world. It's all in here. Not the answer to every question you've ever had, but the answer to every question you must have an answer to before you die right here in this book because it reveals Jesus and it points to him. Okay, so what... what I mentioned this earlier. One of the things that we're doing is reading through a New Testament book um, each week. We started with Galatians. If you didn't join us yet and you want to join us, you can even catch up. We did two really short books. Um, you could catch up in about 30 minutes time probably. Uh, we did Galatians the first week. We did James last week. This week we're going to start the Gospel of Mark. Let's just get halfway through it. That's eight chapters this week. Um, and then next week we'll do the second half of the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark is a testimony of Jesus's life and ministry. If you want to get to know Jesus, read the gospel of Mark this week with us. It will reveal to you who he is, 
what he did, what he does, what he's like. It will bring to life to you the message of the gospel and, and, and the God that all of us were created to know. If you want to know God, read the Bible. Let's pray as the worship team comes up and gets ready to lead us. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself. You are not a God who hides from those who want to know him. You are a God who makes himself known. We thank you for that. That speaks to the goodness of your nature. It's the kind of God you are. That's the kind of God that, that is worth worshiping. A God who loves us enough to make himself known, to reveal himself by sending his son, Jesus, to come and to take our place on the cross. To this, the scriptures testify from beginning to end. May we get to know you this week by knowing your son, Jesus. May we get to know you this week by reading your word, your self-revelation to us. Give us, it, uh, give us an experience of being with you as we get in your word this week. And may we take that experience out into the world around us to those who need to know the gospel. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.